Yachte, my relatives. Hello, this is Mark Charles. It is Wednesday, uh, April 19th, and I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee. If you want to grab a cup and join me, I'd like to have a conversation for a few minutes about our imperative need to decenter whiteness as we seek to decolonize. But before I begin, I want to do as I always do by acknowledging I'm speaking to you from Piscataway lands. Today, these lands are known as Washington, D.C., but the Piscataway are the original inhabitants of these lands. And I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. I'm grateful that you can join me this morning. Um, let's see who's in the chat. We got Shantina here, Yate Abin, or actually, it's not Yate Abin anymore. It's no longer morning here, it's afternoon, but uh, Shantina. Shantina, thank you for joining. Mr. Phil Fox, thank you for joining. It's good to have you here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, if you follow me on social media, you'll see that this morning I tweeted out uh, about a commitment I made. I actually made this commitment when I was running for president. Um, I, I kind of formalized it. I've never been one to wear suits often. I, I really think the last time I wore a suit was probably to a wedding, maybe 20 years ago. Um, I think the only suit I owned was when I got married. I got married in, in a suit um, back in the 1990s. Um, so that, again, that was, over, it was many, many years ago. But um, I've never been one to wear suits much. I just, I don't like them. I, I've never worn them. But uh, during my uh, presidential run, in 2020, when I ran for president as an independent candidate, there were several things I knew I wanted to do when I ran. The first is I wanted to wear my hair in a CA. I wanted to have my hair tied in a traditional bun. I've worn my hair in a bun for almost 20 years now. And I wanted to, to campaign and run for president with my hair in a CA. I also wanted to intentionally campaign to Native nations first. Um, most presidential campaigns go through Iowa and New Hampshire. That may change in 2024, but uh, Iowa is always the first caucus state. New Hampshire is always the first primary state. Um, Iowa is the fifth widest state in the country and has the highest um, amount of private lands in the nation. New Hampshire is the third widest state in the country and has the highest rate of home ownership. So again, if you want to be president, you have to campaign for literally a year, right? It's retail politics in Iowa and New Hampshire. You have to campaign for a year and make yourself palatable to white landowning men because that's who lives there. And I didn't want to do that. I always felt like if you, and this goes back to when I lived on the reservation, if you wanted to be president of this country, to, to be a leader in Turtle Island, the most appropriate and respectful place to begin any campaign for such an endeavor had to start with Native nations and Native peoples. And so I began my campaign by traveling around the country, around our nation, visiting different reservations, campaigning directly to Native peoples and meeting with Native leaders. And I wanted to do that as a way to, to stand against what the systems had done. Um, the other commitment I made when I ran for president is I decided I was not going to wear a suit. Right. In American politics, especially as you get into national politics like Congress and the Senate and definitely the White House, suit is just that's just the expected attire. And 
I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I am not going to wear a suit. And the reason I did that was very, was very intentional. It was very specific. There are way too many pictures, right, of, of before and after pictures of Native peoples dressed as savages, right, being civilized and then being dressed in a suit, right? We have this, this picture in the public domain of um, boarding schools, and right, we just these photos are commonplace. Of look at these native savages who we've civilized and now have put them in uniforms and dressed them, and they're they're little Americans, right? Um, even my own denomination, in the report that we did on the doctrine of discovery for the Christian Reformed Church, as we s- search the archives of our um, of our denomination, there's a, the, the publication, one of the main kind of magazine publications that our denomination has had for decades, maybe even centuries, is called The Banner, which is what we put out as it, it contains the latest news. It's kind of like a, a monthly um, uh, magazine that goes out and it has articles about the Christian from church and about what's going on in our churches around the country. And this was one of the, one of the, art, the banner title covers that we found, right? This was in May of uh, 1935, I think that says. And it, it literally said what Christianity accomplishes. And I had a picture of a native savage transformed into a suit-wearing civilized American. And these pictures nauseate me, right? They nauseate me. And so I made a commitment when I ran for president. My hair was going to be in a sieth. I was going to campaign first and foremost to Native nations and Native peoples. And I was not going to wear a suit, right? I was not going to give white people the benefit, the privilege, not the privilege, the benefit. I was not going to feed their myth of their own exceptionalism by showing them a Native man running for the highest office in their land by wearing one of their suits. I I was not going to do it. And I've I've kept those commitments. My hair is still in the CA. I I still like to travel to Native nations and meet with Native peoples, and I I still I, I maintain my commitment to decolonize by not wearing a suit. And most of the time, I don't think about it. Right, that I don't go into a lot of spaces where I'm expected to wear a suit. It's not like I'm standing out all the time, and I'm kind of sticking out um, frequently. But occasionally, I go to events that are a bit um, more uh, expected, where you're expected to dress up and to wear a tie or a suit. And in those times, I really, I really notice it. And uh, this week, I actually was invited to go to. Um, a prayer breakfast here in D.C. It was a prayer breakfast, not the prayer breakfast in D.C., but it was a prayer breakfast hosted by the Department of the USDA. And uh, it was it was on their building right on the mall. And it was it was an invitation only event. And um, I I registered for it and I decided I was going to go. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I, I wanted I actually wanted to do better about networking here in D.C., 
I haven't done a very good job about just kind of networking around DC and inserting myself into different spaces and conversations. Um, and I, I made a, a decision this past uh, few months that I want to do that better moving forward. And so when I received this invitation, I uh, accepted the invitation and I, I thought it dawned on me beforehand that it probably would be an event where I might be expected to wear a suit, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was. I, I didn't remember seeing anything about the attire on the invitation. But uh, when I got there, <laughs> yes, it was a very, uh, for, it was a breakfast, but it was everyone. I was the only person, only male who walked into the room. Uh, not wearing a suit. I didn't feel embarrassed. I didn't feel like I had to apologize for myself. I just, I went in blue jeans, uh, nice shoes and uh, a shirt and one of my necklaces, my turquoise necklaces. Um, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a button shirt. It was, it was a, it was a, a t-shirt or a, a black shirt that I wear frequently when I speak. And I walked in, I didn't, again, I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel like I had to apologize, but it was very obvious. So I, I was the only male in the room who was not wearing a suit. And uh, so I put that on my Twitter and my Facebook this morning, and I offered a little bit of an explanation about why I don't wear a suit because, right, there are way too many pictures, the before and after pictures, like I just showed you that white people have put in their textbooks, in their newsletters, in their magazines, and even hanging on their refrigerators of the before and after pictures of the savage Indians that they've helped civilize. Um, and I refuse to give them another opportunity to do that. And so that got me, or that continued this thought I've been having for the past few weeks about just ways we need to decolonize and ways we need to begin to intentionally behave differently um, in an effort to actually decenter whiteness, right? So the challenge we face in this nation, especially those of us who aren't white, Right, which is we come from cultures, and especially African Americans and Native Americans who did not immigrate to get here. Right, Native Americans, this country was invaded, and then white people declared a manifest destiny, went across and ethnically cleansed us out of it, and we barely survived. And this nation grew up around us, right? We didn't immigrate to be a part of this country. The same thing with African Americans, black people, right? They were kidnapped from their continent, their, their tribal villages and their, their places and their, their, their cities and their countries in Africa. And they were brought here and they were enslaved. They never made a decision to come here. And so these two demographics, especially, right, we, I think, need to think seriously about the ways that we assimilate into Western, white, European, American culture. Because the ways that we conform says a lot about what we, our opinion of what happened or what we think we need to do to move forward, right? And this is different from someone who immigrated here, who left their lands, even if they left for hard reasons, but they left their lands and came here. They knew they were leaving one place and coming to another and they wanted to try and fit in. And so they may wear suits or they may do things and that's, that is their decision. But for Native Americans and African Americans, I think our 
our willingness to conform or to assimilate to Western European, even Christian culture, um, it, it says something, not even if we don't intentionally mean to say it, but it says something to our colonizers, right? It says something to them about they can pat themselves on the back and they can be, look at, we were successful, right? You've heard me talk about this in the book. You've heard me talk about this in other places, you know, when, when even when they were justifying boarding schools, right? And, and the, the whole goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. And the way it was justified in that speech was, it said, you know, we, they used African people as examples and said, look at, we, we brought these savages from the heart of Africa and cannibalism and everything else. And we brought them here and they've become English speaking and civilized and it happened through association, right? Through associating with members of the higher race is what was said. They've become English-speaking and civilized. So they almost pat themselves on the back. And look, this was in the late 1800s when this speech was given, right? And it's like, so even if we wear these things or conform in these ways or assimilate in these ways, and we're not thinking about we're affirming whiteness, White people see us. They see us dressed in our suits. They see us, you know, aspiring to their seats and trying to get into their schools. And it's like, oh, look at we've 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 done so good. Like this is the first person of color to graduate from this university or to hold this position or to fly in this space that was traditionally only reserved for white people, right? And they 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 pat they they use these things almost like there is some celebrating our accomplishment when. I think actually white people are affirming themselves of like, look at how great we are, right? We, we brought these savages from cannibalism and savagery and everything else. And we've now assimilated them enough that look at, they can even aspire and even achieve some of the things that we have already achieved. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming, I'm gaining a greater uh, sensitivity to white organizations and institutions proclaiming, trumpeting, broadcasting, look at, we have our first person of color, our first woman sitting in this position or in this role or at this place. And again, it sounds like this is, look at how great this person of color is. But essentially they're saying, look at, they, they've finally reached our level of becoming civilized. It's the before and after picture. And this is why I refuse to wear a suit. I'm like, no, you don't get that before and after picture. I will, even if I'm in that position, even if I'm, I'm, I'm campaigning to lead your country, lead this country, I'm not going to wear one of your suits. So I think we have to be very careful how we think about these things. And I'm not condemning other people who say, well, I'm going to wear a suit or anything else. But I, I want to encourage people to think about these things very, very concretely. Because whiteness has become so centered in our nation, right? Oftentimes we don't even realize how we're centering whiteness, whether it's by wearing a suit, whether it's by striving to attend these specific schools or get these certain degrees 
or holding these positions, right? There's there's a, this sense of like, um, you know, we, we, we have to be thinking about this. And we see this especially in politics. I was reminded of this um, the other day when I was, I was talking uh, with a colleague and they reminded me um, about, if you pay attention to politics, um, of course, obviously right now, Republicans are starting to um, uh, announce their campaign for the 2024 election. And on um, April 12th, of this, this was last week, a week ago, Tim Scott, African-American, you know, announced his campaign or his, announced his exploratory committee to run. And um, I'll, I'll put an article in the chat right now where you can read about this. This is his, the article that ran in Politico um, announcing his, uh, his um, campaign. And then I'm also going to put, because he released a video announcing his campaign. And the music on the video actually reminded me some of the announcement I gave when I ran in 2020. It, it was a similar similar type of music. I'm not, obviously, I think the music we got, even from my video, came from the public domain somewhere. So it might even have been the same place. I don't know. But it reminded me. It, it, so it even made me think some about my, my video. Um, but... Uh, in this, in his video, in Tim Scott's video, he made the interesting choice of uh, showing this scene, kind of having a drone flyover of this scene. Now, if you don't recognize this, this is um, Fort Sumter in South Carolina in the Charleston Harbor. And this was where the first shots were fired by Confederates at the Union at this Union um, fort, and it fell just a day and a half later. Um, and that has traditionally been seen as the start of the Civil War. And it was interesting that Tim Scott went back there. And then if you listen to his video, his video literally comes out and talks about his affirmation for the myth, he doesn't call it the myth, but he calls it American exceptionalism. Talks about upholding and, and reestablishing our Judeo-Christian values. It talks about how his political opponents, Biden and the liberal Democrats, he refers to as, you know, they're they're creating a, a, a system of, uh, of being victims. Um, and, right, he, he said a lot of these things. And... Again, it sounds very normal, right? This is how politicians speak, right? The One of the most unifying themes in American politics is the myth of American exceptionalism. And we hear this kind of rhetoric from white people all the time, right? Donald Trump, let's make America great again. Hillary Clinton, America's already great, right? This is how our white politicians speak. They affirm the myth of their own exceptionalism and they talk about how great this country was and how wonderful its history was. They do this over and over and over again. We, we, it, it's a part of our political rhetoric. But as at least our primaries are getting more and more diverse, we're hearing a lot of that exact same rhetoric coming from people of color. 
And the thing we have to note, right, and this is something we look very closely at when I ran for president in 2020, we have to look at is the reason they're saying those things. Why does Tim Scott feel the need to go back to Fort Sumter, right? Why does he feel the need to talk about this? Why does he bring up American exceptions the, the way he does? Why does he talk about how, how he has been given these great opportunities and look at how he succeeded? Why? Because this is what white people want to see, right? This is what they want to know. Okay, we took these savages and we've civilized them and look at their now productive components of our society. And every time we affirm them, like Tim Scott went back there. Why? Because he knows, he knows the Democrats are thinking about moving their primary to South Carolina, but the Republicans are still going through Iowa and then through New Hampshire. He knows that if he wants to win this election, he has to get white landowning men to vote for him, to, to donate to him and to support him. And that video, if you watch it, it was absolutely tailored to get white landowning men to feel more secure, more safe about supporting what historically and traditionally has been a threat, which is a black man, person of color. Right, and, and it's not just Tim Scott. I, I've said this before. I, I, I was listening. I listened. I read, read. I listened to uh, President Obama's memoir when he came out of office. I've talked some about this, right? And first of all, again, I, I've said this before. President Obama, when he was in office, he absolutely learned the imperative for a black man sitting in the Oval Office of the need to espouse the myth of American exceptionalism, right? He came in and he, he used language and did some things that got people from both parties questioning whether he believed the myth of American exceptionalism. Maybe he was going on an apology tour as he went around the, the globe and acknowledging some of our nation's historical faults and, and, and missteps. And he was rebuked by both parties, Democrats and Republicans. And by the end of his second term in office, he was espousing the myth of American exceptionalism as well, if not better, than any white man ever did. All the way down to the title of his memoir, right? If you're a black president who was seen as a threat, so much of a threat that after you left office, they elected Donald Trump, right? The exact opposite, the exact opposite of everything you were and represent and tried to do, right? I mean, this is how, how if that's what happened, and you want to sell books, not just a few, but you want to sell millions of books, what do you got to do? Well, you have to call your book a promised land, right? You got you got to reassure white people that even though you were black and you ran this president, this you you led this nation, white people are still God's chosen people. They still have a manifest destiny. Their sins, their injustices of enslavement and ethnic cleansing and genocide are actually deeds accomplished by the will of God. So he, I mean, again, President Obama, Mr. Obama, which I learned the proper way to refer to someone who's left office of the presidency is to call them Mr. in their last name.
Um, but uh, yeah, so again, he so he titled his book why because he wanted white people to buy it. That's why he titled it a Promised Land. He wanted white people to feel safe to buy this. Now, as I as I read through his book, right as I, I I've said this a few times, there were a few places where I I caught a hint of lament in Mr. Obama's voice that he might've missed a few opportunities to more directly address race or our nation's history or things like that. And again, he read the book himself. So I heard it in his own voice and I felt like I heard some tinges of lament a few times through the book. Like he had a missed opportunity. But he made the very, and he was clear about this early in this book, when he decided to run for president, the centerpiece of his strategy to win the presidency, to win the primary and eventually the presidency, his primary strategy, which he and his political operatives came up with, was he had to win Iowa. Again, Iowa is the fifth whitest state in the country, has the highest rate of private land of any state in the country. Retail politics is the absolute norm in Iowa. And so his strategy was how do I sell myself? How do I make myself palatable? How do I present myself as safe to white landowning men? That was the central point of his strategy. One of the reasons I have so much disappointment with President Obama, and I've actually been thinking about this because I, I, I point him out a lot. And maybe the best way to say this is if President Obama was white, he would have been one of our greatest presidents, right? I mean, he, he conducted himself with incredible morals and, and very few um, uh, moral lapses or, or, you know, missteps while in the White House. He worked really hard, right? The what we now call Obamacare and what he did with healthcare and the things he advanced and even how he helped bring us out of of the recession and and store some strength to our economy. He did some really, really, really good things. The problem I have with him is because he was our nation's first black president. My expectations for him were really high because I refuse to just judge him like we judge white people. Because if we're honest, right, the bar for white people to be successful is incredibly low. Right? It's really, really low. You don't have to do much to be successful as a white person. And if I judge President Obama by the same bar that we judge white presidents by, yes, he was easily our greatest president. But I judge him by a higher bar, a higher bar that I think we need to have for all of our presidents. And I expected him, I hoped that he would do more to address the things in office that I know I've actually lost hope that white people are ever going to address. 
And he repeatedly, he refused to take on that task. And that, that's where a lot of my disappointment comes from. Right? Again, when we aspire to, to whiteness, we're actually lowering our standards, people of color. I want you to think about that. When we aspire to achieve what white people have, we are actually lowering our standards because white people do not have a very high bar to be successful. You don't. Right? You can drop out of college and still go on to become one of the richest people in the world. Not just one, but several of them. Right? So we have to we have to hold ourselves to a, a better, a different standard. But anyway, the point of all this is, is we need to stop decentering white. We need to start decentering whiteness. We need to stop centering it. And the reason we have to do this, the reason this is so imperative, is based on what we saw in Kansas City last week. Right? That's why it's so important. That's why it's so over the top important. Ralph Yarrow, an honor student, young black man, went to the door of what he thought was a house his younger sibling was at, rang the doorbell. Woke up the owner of the house. He came to the door, looked through it, saw that there was a black man in front of him. And without saying anything, shot him. He shot him. Twice. And as the young man ran for his life away from the home, he yelled at him to never come back. The guy had to go to three houses before he finally got help. And now, a very probable defense that Andrew Lester might use is available to him in the state of Missouri is a stand your ground law. Now, obviously it will be very controversial and if he wins, it will result in an absolute uproar. But one of his potential defenses is a stand-your-ground law, which many states around the country have, which is you have a right to be in a place and you have a right to protect your home, you have a right to protect your car, even if that means you have to kill someone who's threatening you. And there is the potential that he may use Missouri's stand your ground law to defend himself because, as he's already stated, he was scared for his life to see a young black man standing at his door late at night. 
this is why my relatives, it's so important that we decenter whiteness. Because when white people live in the center position that they've created for themselves in this nation, in this world, and we never decenter them, we always affirm them, we wear their suits, we study at their education, we sit at their tables, we allow them to pat themselves on the back for allowing us to sit there. Right? When we change our rhetoric and change the way we talk because we want to get the vote and the support and the money of white landowning men. When we do these things over and over and over and over again, white people continue to believe the lie that not only are we less than, and they're in the process of civilizing us, but the, they believe the lie that they're greater than us and they're superior. And then they might actually use a defense that says, therefore, that gives me the right. If I feel threatened, even though the only thing you've done is to ring my doorbell. But because I'm scared, that is going to be my defense as to why I shot you. And this is why this is so serious, my relatives. We can't live in a world where that is even, not only is it allowed or acceptable, but where it's even a possibility to claim such a defense. We don't have to be in your face to white people. We don't have to do this in a, in a, in a demeaning way or in, a, in an insulting way. Right when I when I went to the event the other day in my blue jeans and my t-shirt with my necklace on I wasn't embarrassed that I was the only male in the room not wearing a suit. I didn't feel belittled, I didn't feel less than, I didn't feel embarrassed by that. I know who I am. I know why I dress the way I dress and I know I have every right as much as any other person to be there. I, I'm well aware of that. So I did not feel embarrassed or I did not feel ashamed. I did not feel like I should have been dressed differently. Had anyone asked why I was not wearing a suit, I would have told them exactly why I chose not to wear a suit. But I also didn't do it in a way where I was like in their face. I didn't come in and announce it. I didn't talk down to people. I didn't, I just there conducted myself as anyone else who was in that room. Again, I'm not trying to demean white people. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, to give them a taste of their own medicine. I'm not trying to like, right. They need to be oppressed. Like we were oppressed. No, that's not the goal. Cause that doesn't solve a problem. But I am absolutely open about the fact that, yes, I'm trying to decenter you. You don't get to be in the center just because your skin is a certain color. And if you feel you have the right someday to kick me out of a room because I'm not dressed the way you're dressed, then what's to stop you on another day to claim you have the right to shoot me just because 
I'm knocking on your door at a time when you didn't expect me to be there. The two are actually not that far apart, my relatives. We have to decenter whiteness. We have to begin this process of decolonizing. And I truly believe this process needs to be led by African Americans and Native Americans. Why? Because we are the two group of people who did not immigrate here. And we are the groups that white people look at most closely to see how good of a job they've done at assimilating these savages and making them productive part of their white American Christian society. And so when we wear our suits and flash our degrees and show our successes by achieving what they have in their world, even if we're not intending to do it, it allows them in a certain way to pat themselves on the back and say, look at what we've done. Look what Christianity accomplishes. And we can't give them that satisfaction. We have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. And this isn't just for our benefit. This is actually for our nation's benefit, right? A nation can't live this way. It can't survive this way. And as white, the white majority moves to the white minority, we're gonna see this type of thing happen more and more frequently. And it's going to become more and more apparent. So we have to be intentional about this, my relatives. I hope these things are helpful. Again, I'm not trying to cause strife. I'm not trying to cause chaos. In no way am I advocating for anything violent. But I am saying we have to become much more comfortable about decentering whiteness, not doing it with an in-your-face attitude, but also not feeling like, yeah, we just have to conform or assimilate if we want to be successful. We have to hold ourselves to a different standards and we have to look at people like President Obama, and we have to hold them to a different standard and say, yes, you know what, even though you didn't want to make race central because of the color of your skin and because of the history of this country, you, your presence there did make race central. And it's not just enough to be there. You have to model and be something different when you're in that space. And we have to find ways to empower these leaders, right? We have more and more people of color running for office, but I see more and more of them just thinking they have to just assimilate, change their values and change the things they fight for to make themselves palatable to whiteness. And if we do that, my brothers and sisters, we're not going to fix these problems. We're not going to fix them that way. I promise you. Anyway, 
So second cup of coffee. A lot of things to discuss. I hope these are helpful. I will be, um, I'm going to do another second coffee later this week. I'm not sure if it's going to be tomorrow or on Friday. I, th I think it's going to probably be on Friday instead of tomorrow. But uh, if you ever have questions about things that I ask or things I raise in these second cups of coffee, um, feel free to either uh, message me on social media, even write them in the comments of the videos, um, send them to the contact me page on my website at wirelesshogan.com. Um, feel free to send me those questions somehow. Tag me in a tweet or in a post, and I'll do my best to try and answer them um, as I see them come in. Uh, I, I know I bring up a lot of stuff, and there I want this to be more of a discussion where it's not just flowing one way. That's why I have guests on here at times too as well. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm always open to to getting constructive questions and feedback and and. Uh, trying to find a way to make more of a dialogue out of this. You also, obviously, I've said this before, you can subscribe to my Patreon, right? My Patreon site is one place where uh, you can subscribe there. And I have my Ask Questions tier where I have a Zoom call every month where I just ask, I, I answer questions that people ask. We have a conversation and a dialogue about stuff that went on that month and things I've spoken about, things like that. So you're welcome to join my Patreon um, anytime you'd like, and we, there's a, a space there. I also want to make it a little more available here. Um, also, again, if you'd like to purchase a signed copy of On Selling Truths, um, there's the QR code right there. You're, you're welcome to um, purchase a signed copy of On Selling Truths, or from that same page, you can get the 10 book special. And I just did one of my Q and A's with, uh, with the 10 book special earlier this week. It was on Monday and it was with a group from Wisconsin and I loved it. It was a fantastic conversation. Um, they read the book, they've gone through it. They had some really good questions that came out and I live for those conversations. I love those conversations. So if you have a group who would like to study on Selling Truths, if you buy 10 copies of On Selling Truths from my website um, and I'll send them to you, they're signed and uh, I will give your study at some point over the next year, you can schedule it with my with me, um, I will give you a 45 minute virtual Q&A where we can go go in and, and have some deeper discussion about the book. So those are, those are all available. But yeah, my relatives, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this has been helpful. And uh, I appreciate your willingness to engage in this dialogue. So yeah, my relatives, walk in beauty. And may we all learn how to walk in this beauty together. Hakonet.